And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, we're joined by Lars Krista Olsen, former UEFA CEO, on his thoughts on the shifting landscape of European football. And we'll also look at European basketball, another sport with a closed shop proposal led by elite clubs. So we'll be joined by Thomas Vanden Spiegel, president of the Union of European Basketball Leagues. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Our first guest is a man who's had a, a number of highly influential roles in a 30-year career in the football industry, including being CEO of UEFA, also president of the European Professional Football Leagues, president of Swedish Professional Football League, and also an executive committee board member for UEFA. This may be the hardest question to start with of everything we're going to ask you last, Chris, I don't know, but... Is football in a better place now than it was when you began 30 years ago? Yes, I think so. Especially professional football, I would say. There are, of course, two important parts, uh, the amateur side and the uh, uh, and, and the professional side. And the professional side has been developing uh, quicker than uh, the, uh, let's say the amateur side of well, the sport, I think. It's still better than it was. In how it's run, how uh, is it more professional or is it simply that it is a better run commercial business that brings in greater revenues? Or is it all of them? I'm not so sure that the the governance of football is better, but the professional development in commercial terms is definitely better. Uh, a, two, a two-part question before Matt comes in then, which is give us an idea how you worked your way up at UEFA to eventually be CEO. And also, as you worked your way up, did you have concerns about governance? Yes, uh, it's perhaps easiest to start with the uh, yeah the last one. I, I've always had uh, concerns uh, of the governance, but that's more on uh, on domestic and international level than in in uh, in uh, in Sweden, for example. I started, as you know, in Sweden by being uh, working from the district football community to the uh, football association and in the football association i was the general secretary from the from 1991 i was lucky in that respect that we organized the european championships in 92 which meant that i had a lot of contacts with the uefa people already from the start of my swedish career so to speak uh, which also meant that i was involved in different uh, uefa projects so this is the way i haven't really worked my way up through uh, the administration, for example. In, it was more coming in from the side, from, the, from, from my national football uh, experience in Sweden into the UEFA organization. So it was not a, not a traditional career, perhaps. I was asked to join UEFA when they have made this huge reorganization uh, project of UEFA. And I think they made UEFA the most efficient uh, governing body in the world, actually, all sports, by the, the change of the organization in the, in the late 90s. And then I was offered a position there, which was also luck, I guess, by being responsible for the uh, professional competitions on the men's side, club competitions and the European Championships. And from there on, I was offered the position as the CEO when Gerd Eigner stepped down. Lars Christa, would it be fair to say that you've spent a large chunk of the last 20 years arguing with Europe's biggest, richest, most powerful clubs? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Why? There are different, uh, let's say, positions in football. That's not really a problem if they are managed properly. For each individual club, it's, of course, important to... Uh, make good results and to win competitions. This means that they have a, um, 
a, a certain methodology and they have a certain way of, of organizing themselves, which could differ from country to country. Uh, generally speaking, they have to have the best players to win the competitions. And that means that they are going for money all the time in principle. And that's not wrong because if they wouldn't do that, they wouldn't be champions. There has to be somebody on the other side, though, and that is the role of the governing bodies, in my opinion, and associations on the, in, the, in the domestic uh, context and in a league also. They have to recognize that it's not only one club being a champion. It, they are a part of the community. They are a part of the entire pyramid and the, the entire system. That is why I think it's extremely important that you that you have proper governance models from the amateur level to the top professional level where everybody can dream and everybody has the opportunity to move in the system, so to speak. That's why this ridiculous idea on the, on the closed uh, Super League uh, was a stupid thing, which happily enough went out the window. Are the big clubs greedy? They are greedy because, uh, and they are looking always for most of the money to, to come to the individual clubs. The good thing is, however, that they have also understood that they can't make all that money on their on their own. They have to compete with someone. The history has shown that if you go together in a league and you like the Premier League is probably the best example, you join forces means that you can make more money as an individual club participating in an organization like a league rather than doing the business on your own. So that is the difference, I think, between the ordinary business life and being involved in a sport. And if they recognize that, that the individual clubs will actually make more money together with the others than they can do on their own. And that's a good thing. If you talk about it is down to, to each country's governing body to govern their own individual game, there is a huge debate in this country at the moment, not a huge debate, actually, there's a huge campaign, rather, for a regulator a government-approved regulator to oversee the game. Now, from your experience across Europe, are there regulators within other domestic leagues? Do they work? How do you set one up? Now, I don't think there are individual regulators. I think what's good with the sport is that they are independent from the politics in most countries, not everywhere. We've seen that the worst example was probably the, let's say, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc in the past, where uh, politicians made all the decisions, also the sporting decisions. Um, and that's good in the, in the, let's say in the free, uh, free world, so to speak, where uh, sports are independent. I think they should stay independent. What is important is that the, those who are making the laws and the rules in, uh, in a country are looking after, let's say, the, the ordinary parts of legislation, for example, anti-corruption, for example, against anti-doping, for example. That should be governed by people who are independent from the sport itself. But I can't really see that an, uh, an individual regulator should make things better for the sport. It's better to put pressure on the governing bodies, whether that is the league or it's the association or it's the international governing bodies. That's more important, in my opinion. Who has the power? <laughs> Who has the power in European football? I, I, I spoke to a, a, a former executive at the FA a few months ago, actually way before European Super Leagues, because I was, I, I was doing a, a paper on governance. And they said to me, FIFA can tell a governing body what to do. This is how he explained it to me. So I, this might help for our listeners. I don't know. FIFA can tell a governing body what to do but UEFA can't. However, UEFA can use their competition laws to change how football is run. No, I don't think that's entirely correct. I, I think uh, FIFA could tell an, a member association what to do within, uh, let's say, the framework of the FIFA statutes. And UEFA can do the same with the European national associations. But they have to take, uh, let's say, the governance uh, in each of the countries into, into consideration. They are, UEFA is not independent of the European Union, for example. They are all integrated. Primarily, if we take FIFA as an example, uh, they can decide together with the IFAB on the uh, interpretation of the rules of the game. They can tell everybody in the world that you have to play according to those rules, for example. Uh, and they also can 
tell all the member associations that they should follow the statutes. Otherwise, they cannot influence anything. They can't influence anything when it comes to the development of talents in a country, for example. That's that's a domestic domestic decision. That's depending entirely how they are organized domestically. So our interest in politics, uh, football politics, between these different layers, and I I don't think there is one who is superior, actually, outside their own uh, legislation, so to speak. I just wonder if we just go back to... European Super League, just to perhaps explain to our listeners you know, the kind of role that you played in that that debate. I mean, you know, you 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 were in charge of European leagues. They are the umbrella group that represents domestic competitions around Europe. I think you had, was it sort of 35, 40 members in about 30 odd countries? Yes. There there are thereabouts. Premier League, English Football League, Scottish Premier League, all the we're all in there. So you very much found yourself in this whole long debate about reforming and the next change to the uh, Champions League format, on the side, if you like, of those clubs in many ways who were on the outside looking in. You know, you were there to defend the status quo. Would that be fair? I was there to defend, the, let's say, the, the, the pyramid and the, uh, what, what, we, what I normally call the association football. Because, I mean, with association football, I mean that they are all voluntarily members of football community, which I call association football. And for me, uh, that is important to uh, defend that principle. For example, promotion and relegation, the opportunity for an amateur club to become a professional club. And if a professional club is not doing its its homework, it's uh, falling down the system, so to speak. They can even become... uh, yeah, they can be relegated and down to the amateur system even. So this is what, what is important. It was important for me to defend. And also the fact that in a league, all clubs are depending on other clubs. It was quite easy for me, actually, to take a standpoint. Uh, I had no problem with that. I, I, was not, uh, I was not sleeping badly during night either because as a, as a general secretary of the, or the CEO of UEFA, this happened every three or four years attempts, not as dangerous as this one, I should say, but there were all attempts uh, from the G14 and others uh, over the years. That's what I wanted to get to, because, you know, you've been dealing with this threat for a, a while. Yes. So it goes back to my question of you, over the last 20 years, you've found yourself in this sort of debate many, many times before. Absolutely. Your position's been clear. You haven't shifted. No. So, so did this time surprise you they actually played the card this time the one they've been threatening to play they played it were you surprised actually only one thing which surprised me it was that there were six teams coming from England the only way I can explain it is actually the shift in ownerships of the clubs in England to be honest because these ideas were always in the past coming uh, from the uh, the Mediterranean, and that that's the same thing now. It was Spain and and uh, Italy, or individual clubs, I should say, in those two countries, which took the initiative. And uh, what surprised me was that there were six teams coming from England, because you are you, you normally you are extremely conservative when it comes to sport, <laughs> and in in, this, in right. this case, it's a good thing. Just on the change of ownership, I mean. Are, are we talking about American private equity, people looking for returns on investment? Is, is that the change that you've detected? Yes, I think so. And not necessarily that they are Americans, uh, because, but I think that um, there are different ways of uh, managing clubs in Europe. Yeah, uh, the German situation, uh, the same as we have in Sweden, for example, there is a rule that the members have to own 55% of a club. So there have to be other constructions around the club when they are developing their commercial models. In England, it has been private owners from the beginning, more or less. So there are different uh, different traditions. I think the uh, the way of thinking in an uh, American owner, you you probably know it better than me, but it, it's easy that they look at their own country. How are sports organized in my country? Why shouldn't it be organized the same way? in Europe or in England. Uh, So that's easy to understand. Uh, And that is also why it's so extremely important in Europe that we are protecting what I call the European sports model. It's not only for football, it's for other sports. Also, if we look into basket, for example, which is a 
terrible mess because there's a governing organization so of in different parts of private. They have already a private professional league. Ice hockey in Sweden, for example, which is a very popular sport in Sweden, most of the good players are playing in, in NHL and they are not available for competitions which are important for the uh, Swedish audience, uh, for example. That's why it's important to protect the structure. It doesn't mean it should, should, there shouldn't be any development there. The structure is important. That is also why I've always said I'm prepared to defend association football at all costs, actually, uh, because that is what is safeguarding the opportunity for everybody to participate in World Cups and participate in the big competitions because players can come from everywhere and they know that they have an opportunity to to qualify for the Champions League final or whatever. Just one question, which goes back to UEFA and the clubs who, who tried to join the European Super League. There have been rumours, you know, threats of bans and not being able to play in competition for maybe the three big ones in Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus. UEFA would never do that, would they, to those three, given the demands of commercial and broadcast partners? Oh, yes, I think they could. There were different levels. I mean, when it, when it was really heated discussions... Uh, a lot of people said that they should throw them out immediately, which I was, would have been supporting too, actually. But, uh, but I mean, uh, when I was emotionally uh, heated up. Yeah. But that, that wouldn't make sense, of course, to do, sing, do, to do something in the current competition. But for the next competitions, I think it's really it's realistic. And I think also that those nine clubs uh, who agreed to uh, not mm-hmm. breaking away, they understood that. So in, in my opinion, uh, it's a breach uh, against the principles for association football. I, I, now, the, I mean, the matter lie, is with the uh, disciplinary bodies and they have to, to look at, uh, make some kind of legal analysis, of course, and things like that. And they had to compare it with the, with the statutes and the, uh, the rules or the uh, regulations for the competitions. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the, these three clubs are not... Uh, turning back, um, becoming proper members of the association football, that they should be, uh, they should not be allowed to participate in the European competitions. They would not be expelled from their leagues, of course, but uh, I think that's uh, a realistic uh, outcome, depending on how the clubs are acting. Given your beliefs and given your philosophy, when, when you were sat in UEFA meetings and the Champions League was going to be expanded to 32, for example... And that expansion actually, whilst appearing to give opportunity to more, actually gave the Premier League four places at the expense of maybe the champions of Bulgaria or the champions of Poland or wherever. How did those negotiations go? Did you despair at having to give four places to the Premier League? Who Who is arguing against you going, no, La Liga needs four, Bundesliga needs four, etc.? Uh, ultimately, that is a decision uh, for the governing body, UEFA. And that is the role of the governing body, to, to make a proper, let's say, split between uh, the different member states and the access list to, to the competitions. But I think I have to take you uh, even a bit further back uh, in history to explain it, because in the 70s or 80s or earlier, we had the Champions Cup. We had the Cup Winners' Cup. And there was uh, something which we could call, at least initially, a private initiative to organize this uh, UEFA Cup, which was based on different, uh, different models. And what happened in the international competitions is, uh, was that, first of all, the, it was always a champion coming from the, the big markets or from the communist markets, uh, they were, because they were professionals uh, long before. So the outcome of the competition was always that it was one of the big clubs winning the competitions, of course. But it became difficult. And I think that the, the introduction of private television changed the entire media uh, landscape and also changed the opportunities for football to make money because uh, competition was introduced when, uh, let's say, the monopoly of TV system uh, disappeared. So that meant that if you are going to create entertainment, you have to be able to foresee what is going to happen. And if you have had only the, the Champions Cup, where all the champions were, were participating, you were quite sure that Manchester United would win over the champions of Malta. Uh, that is still the case. 
but you couldn't do anything with that format. You couldn't do anything to make it more interesting. That is what happened when Champions League was introduced. You could have more teams coming from the biggest countries, but you could always also keep the door open for the others, for the smaller ones, to at least participate in the group stage, for example. If you remember, only a couple of years ago, UEFA made the first proposal of changing the format of the Champions League with the, they called the Vision 2019, where we from the leagues were extremely hard working against that project, which we also stopped because that would have become a more or less closed league under the umbrella of UEFA. That is the much more dangerous development than having a, a private Super League. Because a private Super League, you can just, uh, they say, expel them from the association football. And you, it wouldn't take more than five years for other clubs to take the positions of the, the, the big clubs today, because they will change. The biggest clubs today are not necessarily the biggest clubs tomorrow. And that is extremely interesting, it makes the system interesting. What happened with the introduction of the, of the Champions League and the, the further development of the European competitions is actually that the competitions became more interesting. That's a really interesting point you make about the real threat for you was a, an, an officially sanctioned closed shop. That really would be the end of the European sporting model. Yes, absolutely. What do you think about the changes that do go through, though? The, 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 the plan we have got, the, the plan that has been approved whilst we were all distracted by the European Super League, the Swiss model with the 10 guaranteed games, those coefficient places, are we not edging towards the thing that you're most worried about? Not actually the Swiss model, but... If there are, uh, let's say, too many fixed places, for example, and that is also why we, from the European leagues, have said it is there shouldn't be more teams coming from the bigger countries. There should be more positions for uh, for more champions. We also think that it's too much to add 100 matches to the system. So we are still arguing against that. All the leagues are still arguing against uh, that, even if uh, there is a a decision. I think. Uh, the European Super League actually could have made it, uh, could have opened that door again for, for discussions because, in my view, there are still adjustments to be done to have the ideal solution for the European competitions. But it's, uh, it's not, the, the Swiss model is not the problem. The problem in that case is the access to the competition, for example. That's really interesting. So you think adjustments, which is the language that UEFA are using, of those adjustments, be it the 10 games or those two coefficient places, which do you think we have, you have, people that don't like the idea have of, of changing? We should, have, we should not have any coefficient places at all, in my opinion. Uh, and that is exactly my point by saying that the... the uh, the, the champions today are not going to be the champions of tomorrow, not necessarily. If they don't manage their clubs in a proper way, they, they should be relegated, actually. So, and, and that should always have be an opportunity in the competitions. So, in my opinion, the European competition should always be based on recent success in domestic competitions. Because it is the, it's the domestic competitions which are guaranteeing that the amateur clubs can convert from an amateur club to a professional club. And that the, and those are the ones who are all also uh, educating and finding all the talents so that the talents could, could uh, work up the system. Uh, so uh, that is why I think the, these uh, principles are perfectly okay for me and they are the best ones. And they have also been I mean, they've been worked on since uh, 1904 or when FIFA was established or 1880-something uh, when it started to play football in, in an organised way in England. And that still stands. I mean, the principle still stands, but they have, of course, they have to be adjusted according to the uh, situation in the, in, in the world today. If you were at UEFA now, what would your next move be as regards European competition? Because... This hasn't completely gone away. Now, I think there should be some, uh, let's say, structural changes. Uh, in the, and that is decided by, actually, by the governance of the sport. Uh, in my opinion, there should still be some, uh, let's say, 
talks about the development of the governance, uh, including the national associations, the clubs, the leagues, the fans, and the governing bodies. So there, there is room for improvement on the governance side of, of, of the sport to, uh, to prevent this kind of initiatives in the future. Would that be feasible to, to bring all the countries, governing bodies together, the major clubs, fans? Do you think in the, at the end of bringing everybody together, common ground would be found? Yeah, I think common ground would be found in a way uh, it is found in a democracy because there will always be people or clubs or having different opinions. Somebody has to decide at the end. And that is also why the structure is important and that everybody should respect the structure. Uh, that is extremely important. So we have similar uh, difficulties and opportunities in football as we have in our ordinary democracies, actually. It has to be based on democratic principles, for example. So, And also, I think, uh, as giving you one example, I, I think a governing body like FIFA or like UEFA, they should actually look after their members so that they are organized in a democratic way, for example. That is why I think for, for FIFA, the number one priority for FIFA should actually not be perhaps uh, not necessarily being in developing competitions. It should be uh, killing uh, the the way decisions are made. If they are, I mean, working against dictatorship or working against all kinds of bad behavior in the governance structures, that would be the best uh, the best gift from FIFA to the community of sports and football against corruption. Yeah, they might be trying to do a World Cup every two years, Lars Krista, so I'm not sure they're listening. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's that's why it's important that the governing bodies are uh, coordinated. There is always, or has always been, I think, since UEFA was uh, established, a conflict between UEFA and uh, FIFA. That will not go mm -hmm. away, but uh, you should have it, you should organise this in a in a reason, uh, yeah, reasonably uh, professional way and democratic way. Well, speaking of professional, I mean, whilst your time at European leagues is is over, I don't know. You might come back. You might you might still be giving them advice. I don't know. But your 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 own career is is far from over. You're you're still a very busy man. I've just been reading about this new venture you're involved in. Is it Spideo? Is that it? Is that how I pronounce it? Yeah, Speedio, I think. Speedio. Sorry. Well, what can you what can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's too, it's too early to. Uh, I, I'm actually now sitting in a rocking, a rocking chair, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that it's too, it's a bit too early to sit to, to stay sitting here and and make it no, crosswords yeah. and things like that. So I will will still like to be involved one way or another. And this was an opportunity because what has. What actually was um, kicking off, uh, let's say, the commercial development of football was, as I said before, the introduction of private television and the opening, opening up the market for, for, tradition, for, for uh, commercial television. And we are in a similar situation now where also the commercial traditional networks are questioned. Uh, for example, all these uh, OTT solutions, and mm -hmm. uh, Amazon being one of the big, uh, say, figures in, in the... It's a little bit of the Wild West for the time being. Yeah. When it comes to uh, taking care of the moving images and how you are going to communicate. And some of the leagues said, for example, we are going to set up our own OTT solution and we don't need the, uh, the TV companies. Of course they need the TV companies or let's say the streaming platforms for that simple reason that it is too dangerous for a sport even if it's a big sport like football to say that we are going directly to the end consumers because we can't reach them there are other things which are deciding uh, how, how you are going to reach the, uh, the big community. It's not, everybody is not interested in football, even if uh, it's difficult to understand. What I saw in uh, Speedio, which is a uh, Swedish company founded here, and there are similar, I uh, think, things going on in other places in the world, was that 
the technology has developed in such a way that it will now be possible to produce a, an amateur match for very low costs. Everybody can afford it. And even if there are only 200 people interested in what's happening in this club, they would also, if they can't go to the match, they would like to watch it somewhere. And finally, now you can stream it. And for a very small, uh, let's say, fee, you, you can be able to watch that. And you can watch the, uh, the youth competitions playing at the same match. So the grandfather and the grandmother would like to see their grandchild playing, even if that is not going to be shown at BBC or mm -hmm. some of the big yeah, networks. Yeah. Amazon will never pay for that, but they will do. And in practice, I think that means that uh, this will be an important uh, financial resource also for amateur football, for the wide community of football. And not only football, that, because that's the same with other sports. Combining it with artificial intelligence, as Speedio is doing, is for me a very clear step in, in that in a direction which is very interesting. You can go direct to consumer and OTT, you would say, at a at a, a, a more at a lower level, at a more niche level, rather than the mainstream. Exactly. And and that is not uh, they are not excluding each other. I mean the, the professional sports will always be there. And in addition, there is another leg which means that you have what's called speedier perform, where you are, where, where you are analyzing the, the, the sporting qualities and making the players better. If you are, I mean, we're, we're going way off on a tangent, but it is really interesting. If you are an amateur club and you are able to, first of all, stream your games and get them in good quality, then actually you can analyze your performances and your players not to the extent that a professional club does with all their analytics department, but actually you can, you, you can improve yourselves rather than just turning up and having your usual kick around on a Sunday morning and, that, and then going to the pub. Absolutely. And it works both on a professional and amateur level because I think these kind of tools are used also during matches on the professional side because you can easily see... You know, you can, you can see how the different parts of a team yeah. is moving together, for yeah. example. But for the amateur side, you can, you can give it to, to those who are interested in developing, the, uh, developing themselves to make their own analysis. And then we will get a lot of, let's say, good things coming out of that kind of, let's say, uh, amateur analysis. It has been fascinating talking to you and getting your insight into, into how football work, has worked over the last 30 years. We appreciate you giving us your time thank you so much thank you thank you very much get back to your uh, yeah. rocking chair <laughs> yeah, no, no. this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So as we heard, actually, from Lars Krista there, Matt, he, he spoke about basketball and problems going on within that sport as regards breakaways and, and closed shops. So before we bring our next guest in, you yeah. try and do a quick sum up of what's going on here. Well, well, I, well I'll try. I mean, you know, the other obvious ones would be sort of cricket, speed skating. There have been other sports that have been through these debates um, but but arguably, European basketball is the best example, because about 20 years ago, they had a colossal row. Their version of FIFA is FIBA uh, was was and FIBA Europe, which would be the, the equivalent of UEFA, were running. Well, were running international club competitions in Europe. 
20 odd years ago, the biggest, most successful teams, some very, very recognizable names, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Panathinaikos, because they also have football teams, they're big sporting clubs, formed a breakaway. And they've, they've been sniping, fighting about it sort of ever since. There have been new competitions started. There have been threats around boycotts, around international competition. It's been to court. But, you know, 20 years on, Euroleague is, is, a, is a thriving competition. It is, when I look at it, very similar to the proposal of the European Super League. I'm going back to football now with founding members and a long-term TV deal. It's complicated, I I don't follow it every every week, I'll be honest, but I don't need to because we've got a great guest, Thomas van der Spiegel, president of the Union of European Basketball Leagues. Have I broadly explained the landscape? And, and if not, please, please, please correct me. We would need a lot of time to <laughs> explain the full landscape uh, because there's been happening so much over the last two decades, as you said, Matt. Um and the, the landscape, especially for the European club competitions, uh, the, the international competitions, is is very fragmented. There's four different European Cups right now. It's very hard to recognize for the fans, except for EuroLeague, which is considered the top-tier competition today, but it's very hard uh, for fans to recognize. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, we need quite some... Uh, effort and time and, and, and to try to solve this because today we really have uh, lots of issues uh, within the international, well, the European basketball landscape. And it's not easy to, 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 to shortly describe all of these things, but basically what's happened is that, uh, especially since 2016, um, EuroLeague uh, has been a real breakaway league organized by a private organization with long-term licenses, 11th clubs that are also shareholders, um, hold uh, long-term licenses and basically decide on everything that's happening within that EuroLeague. Uh, and uh, the domestic leagues, the national leagues, which I represent because I'm kind of the uh, basketball equivalent of Lars Christer. Yeah. Uh, I, do in, I do in basketball what Lars Christer does in football. But the domestic leagues have basically been uh, denied uh, and, and your sporting performance in your national league uh, doesn't decide anymore uh, on, on what international uh, competition you qualify for. So it's, it's, it's become basically impossible for, uh, for, for a team to qualify for the EuroLeague, for the breakaway league, um, because it's really hard to get in. And even if you would find a team and an investor putting down a lot of money saying, I want to become uh, the next EuroLeague champion, even then, because of these long-term licenses, it's really almost impossible to get in so it's it's quite similar to what we saw happening over the over the last few weeks um, and it was basically 2016 revisited for us uh, for people that are familiar with uh, with the basketball landscape so as president of the union of european basketball leagues then thomas have domestic leagues across europe suffered because of the licensing system that was set up however many years ago to protect those big clubs yeah i think absolutely because uh these clubs still play in both leagues they play in their national league they play in the euro league um which causes of course a lot of friction uh because these are major brands as matt said it's barcelona it's madrid it's uh, fenerbahce uh, it's Panathinaikos, olympiacos so as a league you, you of course you have to take in account what these teams think their priority has been the euro league over the past year so when it comes to scheduling for example we really had to hold our ground on protecting the weekends as uh, as the time slots for for national leagues because weekends are more attractive uh, for tv uh, so so um there's been impact on sponsorship there's been impact on um on local TV deals, on national TV deals, because broadcasters also are also interested in the EuroLeague. The value of all of that has decreased. And uh, what's particular in basketball as well is that there's no solidarity between the breakaway league and the national league. So uh, also at, uh, for example, a grassroots uh, level, 
we have seen quite some impact. So let's say that it's alive. The EuroLeague, it's not as profitable as they would like it to be because we're, we're talking basketball and we're not talking NBA and we're not talking UEFA Champions League here. We're talking European basketball, but it has had some impact uh, on the national leagues for sure. That's also why we have a complaint at the European Commission as well because these big leagues, uh, because Spain is probably the second best league in the world after the NBA uh, at the national level, but we also talk in France, Germany, uh, Greece, Italy. Uh, these leagues are very conscious of what's happening. They, they feel the impact. We have a complaint. All joint, we joined and put a complaint down at the European Commission uh, to explain that this is really not helping European basketball at all today. Is the European Commission the way of resolving this? Is that how it is going to be resolved? If you have a lot of time, it might be. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, the European Commission is the one that protects the European sports model, uh, which is always based on sporting merit and which takes into account certain parameters that go beyond financial gain. Uh, and so it, it is a statement. It's probably not the the ideal way to go and there's other ways and we'd like to sit at the table with all stakeholders and try to solve it ourselves of course uh, but if you want to make a statement and you want to make sure that you are heard you have to go to the European Commission today just to make sure that everyone knows that you can't agree with what's happening. Has the dispute in football with the European Super Leagues has that in any way helped you because all of a sudden People like Matt have have been looking to other sports to see what has gone on with breakaway leagues in those sports. And therefore, it's brought more attention to, some would say, I suppose, the unfairness of other sports. We moved up a couple of drawers in the, in the desks of the, <laughs> of the case team <laughs> because it's, it's, it's more actual today because, because of, the, of the football case. What we always felt with basketball was that there was uh, some type of, let's say, stress uh, at the European Commission because touching football is always uh, more impactful than touching any other sport. And there have been cases that, that Matt named uh, in the past, for example, the, the ice skating union case that, that generated a lot of interest, but that stays within the, within the political landscape and within that federation landscape, but doesn't address the, the, the fans. While today, you can feel that uh, we as basketball, uh, we have become a little bit more relevant today. And uh, Europe realizes that they will have to act at a certain point. And, and if they want to use basketball uh, as an example, that of course, uh, we would accept that and we would be happy with it because we really believe in what, what we're saying today. And it's not that I think we're not against financial gain. We're not against the fact that we want to, 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 to build our sports. But at the same time, we need to realize that there's much more than the top level. There's a, there's a pyramid underneath that could suffer, uh, especially in Europe, uh, because we're in basketball, we're very often compared to the U.S., uh, which is logical. But the U.S. has a completely different grassroots system that is based on the scholarship system. Besides the NBA, there is no professional leagues. It's one nation. It's very easy to change regulations. It's very easy to change things politically, that's completely different. With the football, a lot of the blame was thrown, particularly in the UK, at the American owners who wanted an American model in Europe. Do these big European basketball teams have American owners, any of them, or is it more that because the American model is the elite level within basketball, that that's why eyes are being cast at, at that. It's not at the level of ownership, but I think that's what connects both cases is the fact that uh, uh, these American owners in football, they know their NBA model, they know their uh, NFL model. At the same time, uh, the European owners of the basketball teams, they look at the NBA model and say, that's what we need over here. So I think that's what connects both models. Of course, that's just the top player. We have nothing against that top player. We want it to be the best basketball possible. But at the same time, we, we need to respect what's underneath. We need to respect that pyramid. We need to respect the grassroots system that we have today. Uh, and we need to make sure. The thing is, what we have in basketball and what could be the risk in football as well, the cake is, it's, it's a cake today, 
that will be divided in different pieces, but the cake is not getting bigger in basketball. And uh, so the big clubs are getting bigger, bigger pieces than they are today, but everyone else is getting less. While the goal should be to make the cake bigger and make sure that everyone gets better. And in basketball, uh, we've seen that that doesn't work. So the cake's still the cake, and it's just been divided in smaller pieces for uh, for for different stakeholders. That's a really interesting analogy, Thomas. I mean, because it, just hearing your answer a few minutes ago where you were talking about the impacts, the immediate impacts of Euroleagues on domestic basketball competitions. You had to defend your weekends. You know, broadcasters, sponsors immediately saw that your competition was diminished. How seriously are the founding members, how seriously are the, the key, key teams, the, the key clubs in Euroleagues taking their domestic competitions? Do they play their best players at home or in Europe? I'm a former Real Madrid player. A team like Real Madrid can't afford to only play uh, a Super League okay. today. They need to win. They need to come home with a Copa del Rey or they need to come home with a, with a domestic championship at least one, once every two, three years and uh, preferably every year. They have always been, uh, especially when it counts, because in basketball we have playoffs, they've always played, played their best players. But other teams like, uh, for example, Maccabi Tel Aviv, which is a, which is a very important team in basketball, uh, which has won uh, many European titles, they started making two teams and two lineups and they started lining up different guys in their local league because they know they can dominate that league at the end of the year when the playoffs come around. And uh, So that, that's what we saw as well, that, that teams are, uh, are, are really doing that. We've been asked also to, uh, for example, start accepting teams only at the end of the year domestically so they would play the breakaway league uh, uh, during the year, and then at the end of the year, when playoffs come around, they would just enter at the time when the playoff playoffs come around, stuff like that. So, so it really diminishes. Uh, that's, that's, what? Really? Really? I, don't, I mean, I don't care what the sport is. Do you really like you to any sport fan, even if they know nothing about basketball? You have genuinely had teams gone. Actually, we won't play the regular league season, but because we're so big and we do so well, we'll just come in at the playoffs. Yeah, but that's that's things that are still on the table today and ideas wow. that are still on the that's table. That's amazing. Today. And the, I mean the other thing that I think is really interesting is again it's this 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 parallel with the with the European Super, Super League in football. You know this this idea that the closed shop would be good for them. And you said that it wasn't as profitable as they hoped. That's interesting. Has it in your view closed the gap between the top of Europe and the NBA? Has has there been any kind of appreciable improvement in standards? Uh, no, not really. The, the thing is also that when, when they started 20 years ago and then uh, even over the last decade, in the past, the good players, uh, the Europeans used to stay here. While uh, we've seen, of course, uh, over the past 10, 15 years, uh, due to some real role models like Dirk Nowitzki or Tony Parker uh, and others, that there's a very high interest from NBA teams, of course, that can pay more uh, in European players, but even in, in, in imports. So US players that used to play in Europe for quite some salaries are staying there. No, so, so they haven't been able, nor on the sports side, nor on the financial side, they haven't been able to close that gap. Uh, of course, the, the EuroLeague today generates more than it used to in the past, but it doesn't come near any of the NBA teams and none of them uh, are profitable today. So all of them make losses. Of course, most of them are or owned by very rich owners that uh, that can keep putting money in a team or they're part of a football. Of course, the Real Madrid's or the Barcelona's that lose 30, 40 million per year uh, compared to the football club. It's nothing and, and they can afford to do that. Just a final one for me, and it comes back to something Lars Christa said earlier. With the threat of, a, of the European Super League and the breakaway, he thought, in some ways, that might be preferable to just reforming the competition and having coefficient places and so on and so forth, because he said, let them go. Let them go, and in five years' time, there will be the next big clubs coming through, because that's what history tells us. You know, clubs go up and down, and the success and failure, and a club that was successful in the 70s might not be successful now. Could you do that in basketball? Could you just let them go? We've said that in the past, but they, like I said earlier, they have no interest in doing that because their domestic markets are important for them as well, especially on the fan side. Uh, they don't want to 
play one league and not win for the next 10 years. And that's what you risk when you only start playing one league. Uh, and we've put that on the table and that's something that we've told them uh, before, just leave and go play your own league and, and, and we'll see what happens. But we can say that in basketball, they don't have the guts to do that today. Uh, they don't see the interest and, and they know they cannot defend that uh, towards their local markets, towards their fans. Finally, are all sports talking here? I mean, have you been talking to football? Have football been talking to you? Are there other sports that are planning similar things that are interested in how you are dealing with it? Yeah, we, we've talked to to different sports. I've met with Lars Christer several times over the past years as well uh, to see where, where our cases meet and, 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 and what, we, what we could eventually do together or at least align our positions. Uh, we've talked to handball federations. We've talked to different sports. So we want the best for the sport. I think that's what we all want, but we just want to think and we consider the domestic level still important as well. And, uh, and that's something that, of course, w- the Super League will come back on the table uh, within the next uh, months, years. Uh, but we need to find an integrated model that respects both international competitions, domestic leagues and national team competitions. And I, I think there's space for those three uh, in every sport. You just need to find the right model. Very interesting. Fascinating talking to you. It really is. Uh, thank you very much for, for your insights. And, and hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cheers, guys. Thomas. Thank Take you. Care. Thank thanks. you. So thanks to Thomas. That's it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of the special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.